Which of these was the neighbor? I think most of us would like to think that we would cross the road to help an injured man, or woman, or child, or puppy, for goodness sakes. I think any of us would have difficulty willfully ignoring the plight of another being. Unless, of course, someone else got there first, and then, phew, we don't have to do anything. Unless, of course, it requires us to leave the comfort of our cozy confines or to be inconvenienced in some way, and then, eh, somebody else will probably help. Unless, of course, I'm already at max capacity and I cannot afford the time, and then I might not even notice. Well, we are talking this month about some of our favorite things in church, favorite scriptures, favorite traditions, favorite practices, favorite hymns, as you heard from Virgil, all as a way of, of bringing us some attention and some intention about our spiritual journey. Why do we do what we do? What do I maybe need to reevaluate or rethink? Are there scripture passages that I don't really understand and, and maybe need to revisit, take some extra time with, and see what I've missed or misunderstood? So I'm sharing some of my favorite scripture passages along the way, and today we hear the story of the Good Samaritan, the one who watched two other men before him leave a man bloodied and beaten on the side of the road and said, uh-uh, not on my watch. A man who looked into the eyes of a stranger, an enemy, you might even say, because of their difference in lifestyle and religion and race, but he scooped him up, he nursed his wounds, secured him a place to stay for the night in safety, and promised more help as needed. He did all that for someone that he didn't even know. Jesus uses this story to illustrate what it means to be a neighbor, and I love it because like many things in my early life, it reminds me of my grandma. My grandma was a single mom raising four kids during the Dust Bowl during the Depression. She and my grandfather would later reconcile, but the ripple effects of that hard time were many, and for a time, even their marriage failed them. Farmers in the Dust Bowl states lost everything they had, crops, died in the years-long drought and heat and relentless wind. There was little to no food. Government relief was no relief at all. People who tried to leave to find a better life were treated so badly by locals in other states that they wondered why they had left, why they had even bothered to leave that harsh and windswept and dying prairie land in the first place. But even still, they were forced from their homes with nowhere to go, forced out either because the banks foreclosed on them or because the dust storms got so bad week after week and year after year that they literally risked dying of dust pneumonia. It would not be an exaggeration to say, figuratively at least, that people were left 
by the thousands bloodied and dying on the side of the road. It was called the worst hard time for good reason. And I said my grandma was raising four kids, but she already had two that had died of diphtheria just a few years earlier. And then in the midst of all of this struggle, this incredible time of hardship, her brother sent his four kids to live with her also. My grandma took in ironing to support them all. I don't know how people got through a time like that in those awful years, but I do think maybe they shared something in common with many of you. Last week, I asked people online to share some of their favorite scripture verses, which I'm going to do again. If you're watching online, go ahead and put in the chat what some of your favorite verses are or favorite hymns. I'd love to start that dialogue with us throughout the weeks ahead. But many of you had the exact same scripture verse as a favorite, and it comes from Philippians 4. So maybe this is one of the things that also got through some of our ancestors in these hard times. It goes like this. I have learned to be content in all circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So maybe passages like that that help you also helped them. We can rely on our faith when everything else seems to fail us. We can be sure of the hope that we have. And one of the things that our faith tells us is to think outside of ourselves. In the worst hard time, you shared everything you had. You took in people who needed a place to stay, you rescued the ones who needed it, and you helped liberate people who just needed to get out. People in my grandma's small town knew that they could direct any stranger to town over to her house, and like the ironing, she would take them in. By the time I came around, stories of my grandmother's generosity were legend. She lived in a tiny house in a dusty town in Baca County, Colorado, which is just barely over the Colorado state line from the Oklahoma panhandle. I never knew her to not have someone sitting at her kitchen table. It might only be beans and cornbread one day, but you were not gonna go hungry at her house. So when Jesus asks, which of these was the neighbor to the person in need? I know who he meant. Did you catch, by the way, how Jesus flipped the question here? The lawyer, who clearly knew his scriptures very well, was asking Jesus how he could enter into eternal life. And Jesus asks him back, well, what does scripture say? And the man says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's right. Do this. But then, as you heard in the scripture reading this morning, the man follows it up. He says, now hold on just a minute, though. I just want to be really clear. I want to get this right. Exactly who is my neighbor? You see, he wanted specificity. 
He wanted to get this right because if I know that it's this one or that one, then maybe I can get into the kingdom of heaven, he says. Who is my neighbor? But in response, Jesus tells a parable. He tells the parable of the good Samaritan, the merciful Samaritan man. And then he answers the question with a question. He turns to the lawyer and he says, now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? You see, the lawyer was asking a very different question. He was asking, who out there is considered my neighbor, just so I know? And the thing with that is, if I'm looking at people wondering if they're my potential neighbor, then I haven't really committed yet. I'm not all in. If I'm house hunting, for example, and I'm looking at different neighborhoods, all the while judging the surrounding houses and the cars in the driveways and what are the kids who are playing in the yards and how well things are landscaped, whether or not I would fit in. If I would want these people to be my neighbors, then there is a high likelihood that I might just keep driving. Location, location, location. But if I enter into every neighborhood, every situation, knowing that I am already a neighbor to these people, then everyone I encounter is an extension of that thought. And if, like the lawyer, you need a little specificity, well, Jesus says, here it is. Anyone in need is our neighbor, period. There is an abundance in thinking that we have enough love and compassion to go around. There is no abundance in the idea that I only have enough love and compassion for the people in my small little world. We are tribal in nature. Our instinct is to exist among people who think and act exactly like we do. Today, we create tribes on social media. We create tribes on school playgrounds, at the office, in politics, in our churches. And hundreds of years ago, that might have been okay. That might have worked to a certain degree, maybe with the possible exception of all those other tribes that we used to kill. But in today's information age, we are, it is critical for us to, to connect with each other and to transcend those tribal lines in healthy and productive ways. We just have to figure out how to do that. You know as well as I do that to watch the news today is to sink into this abyss of limitations. There are too many people in the world and not enough food, not enough fuel, not enough clean water, not enough sound infrastructure, affordable places to live, not enough quality education in the world. There's not enough time, not enough freedom, not enough justice or equality. There's not enough independence. Not enough people who think like I do. Not enough compassion. There's not enough good leaders. Not enough love. But because we get stuck in a mindset that there is not enough, then our tendency is to shrink ourselves even further. 
We stay right here in our little tribe. We know what's best in our tribe. My tribe could take care of this if only everyone else would just listen to us. I don't have enough time to deal with you and your way of thinking because over here on my side of the fence, we're busy making things happen. We just need to focus over here. Leave us alone so that we can solve the massive problems confronting us today. I don't care what you have going on over there because our stuff over here is super important. Maybe this is what the Levite and the priest had on their minds that morning when they passed by the man who was beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. Scarcity thinking captures our minds so fully that we have a hard time focusing on other things. One study actually showed that a mind confronted by too much work and too many emails exhibits similar patterns to someone who is desperately in need of money. And we've all seen what happens when people are overloaded like this. They begin to freak out. They can't sleep. They stop going to the gym. They get angry. They don't call their family members. They work on vacation. They drink too much. They check their emails and their text messages when they should be watching their son's baseball game. Too much work, not enough time. Yet we all know full well that just taking one hour out of our day to exercise improves productivity. We know this, I know this, and I still don't do it. I'm horrible at it, but I know it's true. But you see, abundant thinking looks at that list of not enoughs and says, how do I transform this shortage into a surplus? How do I take what little I have and still help others? How do I expand my heart to include loving my neighbor as myself? How do I expand my heart to love my enemy even? These are the questions of our faith that we have to continually ask. Jesus didn't tell us how to do it. Sorry about that. I know you want that, right? Who is my neighbor? Just like the lawyer asked in the scripture. We want that specificity too. But all Jesus says to us is, go and do likewise. He's sending us out. And when we go out, when we do that, we might just be surprised at what we're capable of. These are just a few examples that came to mind for me this week. A mountain rescue team coordinates a massive late night effort to save two hikers lost in a remote wilderness area. A 16-year-old girl challenges world leaders on a national stage to take immediate action to reverse climate change. A Harvard Law School graduate rejects the big paycheck in a high-profile career and instead works tirelessly for the poor and the underrepresented in our criminal justice system and just happens to save hundreds of people from wrongful sentencing, from the death penalty, and from wrongful conviction. The entire world dons masks for better than 15 months in order to keep each other safe from COVID-19. 
And just a few days ago, the U.S. passed the Juneteenth Independence Day Act by an overwhelming majority. It was a massive bipartisan move, finally. Nearly every single member of Congress was able to come together in order to commemorate the abolishment of slavery in the U.S. 150 years ago. Which of these do you think was the neighbor? All of them. What each of them had in, in common is not that they were extraordinary people doing extraordinary things, but that they were ordinary people making intentional decisions to improve the lives of people around them. They were not worried about being comfortable. They were not worried about how they might be perceived or whether or not their decisions would increase their own standing or that they would be well-liked. They weren't worried about whether or not they could afford the time. In fact, I believe that every single one of them acted with a belief that there is enough goodness in the world to go around and that everyone deserves to be part of it. This is decision-making from a place of abundance, not scarcity. One of the most poignant quotes in church history comes from John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church. He said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, all the times you can, to all the people that you can, for as long as ever you can. John Wesley knew the power of intentional acts of love, compassion, and kindness, the transforming power of loving our neighbors. Our faith requires that we reach beyond our tribal walls and expand the definition of neighbor. How you do that is up to you, but I know one thing for sure, it's a big, big world, and there is no shortage of ways to express God's love to those around us. So the real question this morning is, what kind of neighbor will you be? And let us contemplate that for just a moment as we turn to prayer.